Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're taking a look at the genetics of giants and the science of small. Why do some species grow so large? What's the genetic legacy behind the giants of Ireland? And what was it about life on a Mediterranean island that miniaturised a mammoth? In 2012, Argentinian shepherd Aurelio Hernandez set off for work one fine day to search for his flock on the ranch where he worked in Patagonia. But instead of sheep, he came home with reports of huge bones sticking out of the dusty dry landscape. Subsequent excavation revealed a dinosaur graveyard, with at least six huge sauropod dinosaurs becoming stuck in the mud on what, around 100 million years earlier in the late Cretaceous, would have been a swampy floodplain. One of the specimens, a new species of titanosaur named Patagotitum maiorum, caused particular excitement. Although its exact size is up for debate, with its thigh bone standing 2.38 metres, or almost 8 feet tall, this individual would have clocked in at something like 40 metres from nose to tail, with a body mass just shy of 70 tonnes. Measurements that would make this animal the largest terrestrial species on record. Giants have a knack of capturing the imagination. Whether it's a new titanosaur, tales of mythical giants, towering redwoods, or the awe inspired by a close encounter with a whale, everyone loves really big things. Go big or go home is a philosophy that goes way back in time, from the moment that multicellular organisms became a thing around three billion years ago, the stage was set for the emergence of absolutely massive organisms. Gigantism is a recurring motif in evolution's playlist. There are giants, now extinct or occasionally still with us, in just about every multicellular branch of the tree of life. In the coral reefs of the South Pacific and Indian Oceans, there are giant clams that are more than a metre long and can weigh over 200 kilos. There's an ammonite, a type of snail-like mollusk from the late Cretaceous, whose three-metre diameter would have made it too large for the mantelpiece. Uncoiled, its spiralling body would have stretched to almost 20 metres, comparable in length to the largest specimens of the extinct giant shark, Otodus megalodon, and the still-living giant squid. On land, there have been, and still are, giant insects. Open your hand wide and you'll just about cover the length of the largest living beetle, Titanus giganteus, an impressive 17 centimetres or more than six and a half inches. And if that makes you shudder, you probably won't want to contemplate the biggest insect on record, a colossal dragonfly, sometimes called a griffinfly, from the Permian era almost 300 million years ago, with a body length of almost half a metre and a colossal 71-centimetre wingspan. Big birds aren't just for Sesame Street. Given that they're descended from dinosaurs, known for their size, it's unsurprising that there are some impressive feathered giants flapping through the fossil record. 
One was a vast pelican-like bird called Pelagornis, whose five-metre-plus wingspan would have cast a shadow across the entire length of a Cadillac car. Reconstructions of forest racids, an extinct species of flightless predatory bird that roamed Earth up to two million years ago, are genuinely scary. Often referred to as terror birds, the largest individuals would have towered over the average adult human. They had the funking great thigh bones of a sprinter, fiercely sharp talons and an eagle-like beak that would have ripped into their much smaller mammalian prey. Not so much, who's a pretty boy, and more, oh god, please don't eat me. In time, however, the mammals had their turn at being giants too. There are crowd-pleasers like Megatherium, the giant ground sloth that, standing on its hind legs, could have chewed on leaves some six metres above the ground. Then there's the Irish elk, Megaloceros, with antlers that spanned more than 3.5 metres from point to point. And the armadillo-like Glyptodon, which was roughly the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. And who can resist a giant beaver? Castoroides, sadly no longer with us, was probably a hefty hundred kilos and had front teeth as long as your face. Almost all of the world's known megafauna are now extinct, some vanishing relatively recently in evolutionary terms, in the past 40,000 years or so. What's left is the African elephant as the largest living land mammal, and the blue whale, with a fluke-to-snout distance of over 30 metres and a body mass of over 150 tonnes, the largest living marine mammal. In fact, the blue whale is the largest animal on record. Period. There are hundreds of other examples beyond this list, but what's clear from this quick survey of the Tree of Life is that giant animals have appeared over and over again in the history of life on Earth. And what this repeated independent evolution of gigantism strongly suggests is that being not just big, but really, really big, must have its uses. Within the animal kingdom, one obvious benefit of being massive is that you have more muscle power. While it does take a lot of food to keep you alive, being big allows you to commandeer more resources, marginalising or, metaphorically, trampling over more diminutive species that might be after the same stuff. The other significant upside of being bigger than everything else in your ecosystem is that you reduce the risk of being consumed by something else. Both these selective forces were almost certainly in play during the evolution of nature's giants, says Herat Vermey, a geologist at the University of California at Davis, who studied the conditions that may have been needed for gigantism to evolve. You can't become gigantic without at least some degree of food supply, but it's probably things like competition and predation that compel lineages to become very large, he says. When it comes to understanding the genetics of nature's giants, we don't actually know all that much. But the genome of the world's largest living rodent, the capybara, does give us some pointers. It's no blue whale or African elephant, but this famously chilled-out semi-aquatic mammal is a veritable behemoth compared to its ratty relatives. With an average body mass of 55 kilos, the capybara is around 2,000 times bigger than a mouse and 60 times larger than its closest living relative, the guinea pig-like rocky cavy. 
The capybara evolved from a one kilo ancestor in the space of just 20 million years or so. That's incredibly fast in evolutionary terms, making the capybara an interesting muse for those interested in understanding the genetics of gigantism. And when evolutionary biologist Santiago Herrera Alvarez and his colleagues scoured its genome, they found evidence of accelerated evolution in 12 genes and gene families involved with cell proliferation in early development and bone growth after birth. Being massive, for all its advantages, does have some significant drawbacks. One is that building and maintaining a big animal requires a heck of a lot of cells. And that means a heck of a lot of cell division, which should, at least in theory, increase the risk of rogue cells popping up that could lead to cancer. Curiously, this hypothesis doesn't seem to hold up, a fact first noted by epidemiologist Richard Pito in the 1970s, who found that bigger, longer-lived animals don't appear to have a higher prevalence of cancer. If anything, it's the other way round, with large, long-lived animals like elephants, whales and even our friend the capybara having unusually low rates of cancer compared with smaller creatures. So, what's going on? Well, the solution to the eponymous Pito's paradox, like so much in biology, lies in evolution. If the incidence of cancer begins to creep up in a species, it will be those individuals with a chance cancer-proofing mutation that will be more likely to survive to reproductive age and pass on their genetic innovations to the next generation. Support for this evolutionary explanation is to be found in a survey of the best-studied cancer-protective tumour suppressor gene, TP53, across a range of animals of various sizes. Many mammals, including humans, have just one TP53 gene. In the human genome, our TP53 gene is found on the short arm of chromosome 17. We all have two copies, or alleles, one each from mum and dad, and if one of these copies is defective, this results in Lee-Fraumini syndrome, a hereditary condition that leads to around half of those with it developing one or more cancers by the age of 30. So, it makes sense that evolving extra backups of TP53 would provide more protection, acting like an insurance policy against cancer. It is intriguing then to learn that as the elephant family tree branched to generate new lineages of increasingly massive mastodons and mammoths, there appear to have been duplications of the TP53 gene. The cells of modern elephants boast not one, but 20 versions of TP53, adding up to extraordinarily efficient protective DNA damaging responses, which may help to account for the very low levels of cancer in these giants. As soon as a cell gets damaged, it dies, so there's no opportunity for it to turn into a potentially lethal tumour. While extra copies of TP53 might be the solution to Pito's paradox for elephants, it's not the only genetic trick in town. For the capybara, natural selection appears to have settled for enhancements in three other gene families. One involved in tumour reversion, where cancer cells switch back from their bad behaviour to become more normal. A second that flags up potentially cancerous tissue to the immune system. And a third that plays a role in programmed cell death, or apoptosis, which is the way of getting rid of damaged cells before they can cause trouble. 
Aside from cancer, being gigantic poses another significant challenge. Big animals have large appetites, so there's a limit to how many giants any given ecosystem can sustain. And small populations of large, slow-to-reproduce individuals are not particularly stable, so they tend to be the first species to go in a mass extinction. This may help to explain why giants, every time they have evolved, do not last long. As Herat Vermai puts it, large size has never been a long-term advantage. But if there's one thing that the fossil record tells us, it's that life always finds a way, and in time, new lineages of gigantic creatures will emerge. They'll be back. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show. The Irish giant's dying wish was to be buried in a lead coffin at sea off Margate. Born in Londonderry, Northern Ireland in 1761, Charles Byrne is said to have grown like a cornstalk, quickly reaching a staggering 7 foot 7 inches. In 1782, at the age of 21, he travelled to London where he sought, and to some extent found, his fame and a small fortune. Billed as a modern colossus and described by one newspaper as the most extraordinary curiosity ever known or ever heard of in history, Byrne caused an overnight sensation. He entertained packed halls of fee-paying Georgian guests, got to meet King George III himself and even inspired a hit pantomime at the Theatre Royal on Haymarket called Harlequin Teague or the Giant Causeway. The celebrity of the Irish giant might have reached even greater heights, but hit with tuberculosis, he began drinking heavily, and within a year, he was dead. A newspaper at the time noted that a whole tribe of surgeons put in a claim for the poor departed Irishman, surrounding his house just as harpooners would an enormous whale. But having been told Byrne's dying wish, his friends arranged for the burial at sea. What they didn't know is that somewhere between the undertakers and the very long lead coffin sinking beneath the waves of the North Sea, Byrne's body vanished. But he wasn't gone forever. A few years later, the skeleton of the Irish giant appeared as an exhibit in the private museum of the anatomist, surgeon and collector of biological oddities, John Hunter. One story has it that Hunter paid the undertaker £500 to switch out the body and fill the casket with stones to avoid suspicions being raised en route to Margate. In an alternative telling, Hunter is said to have simply paid off Burns' bribable friends. Either way, it seems likely that the famed surgeon boiled up the body, stripped it to the bones and secreted them until London's chattering classes had started chattering about something else. 
After Hunter's death, the British government purchased his large and varied specimen collection, including the Irish giant, to establish the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons in central London. Burns' skeleton was still on display, alongside jars of pickled body parts, bones and all sorts of other bits and bobs, until the museum closed for refurbishment in 2017. While Byrne may not have got his wish to rest in peace at the bottom of the sea, one upside of this giant body-snatching saga is that scientists have repeatedly studied his skeleton in their efforts to understand why Byrne and others like him sometimes grow and grow and grow. The most common cause of becoming unusually tall is having an adenoma, a type of benign tumour, on the pituitary gland. That's a pea-sized organ at the base of the brain, responsible for the production and secretion of several vital hormones. One of these is growth hormone, a protein messenger that instructs bones and associated tissues to grow, partly by boosting production of the hormone insulin-like growth factor 1. If growth hormone is produced in excessive amounts during childhood, it can result in what's known as pituitary gigantism. Once puberty is over, the levels of growth hormone normally tail off, the bones fuse and they can't get any longer. But if growth hormone continues to be released into adulthood, which can happen with a pituitary adenoma, this causes bones to become thicker and thicker, a condition known as acromegaly. In 1909, the so-called godfather of neurosurgery, Harvey Cushing, famous for the discovery and description of Cushing's disease, another hormone disorder, had a hunch that Charles Byrne's towering stature had been the result of a childhood pituitary adenoma, and he persuaded the conservator of the Hunterian Museum, Arthur Keith, to let him take a look at Byrne's skull. As predicted, the pituitary fossa, the cavity that houses the pituitary gland, was about twice the normal size, a result of an adenoma that Keith described had grown upwards and forwards, causing a very distinct impression on the floor of the cranial cavity. The thickening of Byrne's skull suggests that his anterior pituitary must have continued to secrete growth hormone beyond puberty and that he'd suffered from acromegaly too. John Hunter could have easily described this pituitary enlargement more than a century earlier, if only he'd taken the time to look. But as Cushing wryly noted, his passion as a collector exceeded his thirst for knowledge. The scientific interest in Charles Byrne didn't stop there. Although Byrne was the only giant from the Irish village of Littlebridge, the Knipe brothers, identical twins from a nearby village, were also pretty tall at over seven feet apiece. With the suggestion that these three giants were related, it seemed reasonable to imagine that there might be some genetic basis to pituitary gigantism. Around 15 years ago, Researchers studying the genetic makeup of a Finnish family with a history of pituitary adenoma drew attention to the gene encoding the aryl hydrocarbon receptor interacting protein, or AIP for short. Subsequent investigation has confirmed it plays a predisposing role to growing into a modern-day giant, with nearly one in three of those with pituitary gigantism having an alteration in the AIP gene. 
Marta Korbenitz, an endocrinologist at Queen Mary University of London with a special interest in pituitary adenomas, began to look for AIP mutations or deletions in her unusually tall patients, and she found a lot, including four families from Northern Ireland. So, is it possible, she wondered, that Charles Byrne could also have had issues with his AIP? With permission from the Hunterian Museum, Corbinitz removed two teeth from the skull of the Irish giant, succeeded in extracting DNA and discovered a single DNA letter change in the middle of Byrne's AIP gene. When she sequenced the DNA from patients with pituitary adenomas currently living in Ireland, she found they were all carrying the exact same alteration. Corbinitz has calculated that the variation probably first appeared in a single common ancestor who had lived, probably in Ireland, between 57 to 66 generations earlier. Follow-up research suggests that one in 150 people in the region where Byrne grew up carry this gene variant, far higher than the one in 1,000 in Belfast, which is why this part of Ulster has been referred to as a giant hotspot. The identification of alterations in AIP and other genes that increase the risk of developing a pituitary adenoma is becoming a key tool in speeding up diagnosis of gigantism and acromegaly. This is important because, apart from excessive growth, pituitary adenomas are associated with a range of health conditions, including delayed puberty, loss of vision, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, sleep apnea, arthritis and thyroid cancer, to name just a few. The longer the delay in diagnosis, the more of these health problems accumulate, with an inevitable reduction in lifespan. With early diagnosis, more treatment options become available, including surgery, radiation or chemotherapy to reduce the size of the tumour, or medication to counteract the actions of excessive growth hormone and its mental, physical and hormonal toll. Diagnosis is key to fighting the debilitating effects of this condition, write the authors of a recent review looking at the importance of early diagnosis. Delays in diagnosis only prolong suffering and the battle of the patient being in control of this disease, instead of the disease being in control of the patient. From the vantage point of the 21st century, John Hunter's acquisition of Charles Byrne's body more than two centuries ago looks decidedly dodgy, and there have been calls for the giant's remains to be returned to Ireland. The Hunterian Museum, due to reopen in 2023, is updating its displays and has yet to announce the fate of the skeleton. Whatever happens, it's fair to say that Byrne, once touted as the tallest man in the world, has made a giant contribution to science. Like in the TV series Lost, when you live on an island, things can get more than a little weird. We're not talking about spooky supernatural stuff here, but the unexpected appearance of giants and dwarves. The idea that when confined to an island, small species can get big and big species can get small is known as Foster's Rule. 
in a paper published in the journal Nature in 1964, mammologist J. Bristol Foster compared over 100 island species to a mainland equivalent and found that the species in some families, mainly rodents, appeared to be larger on islands, while others, like ungulates and carnivores, ended up smaller. This so-called insular gigantism, he proposed, would occur when a species found its way to an island only to discover an absence of predators, while insular dwarfism would be the consequence of a species ending up on an island where the resources just weren't enough to keep them in the manner, size-wise, to which they'd become accustomed. Some of the most interesting cases of island gigantism and dwarfism were found by Welsh paleontologist Dorothea Bate, who got a job at the Natural History Museum in 1898 and was probably the first woman ever employed as a scientist by the institution. In a skirt, boots and wide-brimmed hat, Bate worked her way through the deposits in mountain and coastal caves on Mediterranean islands to reveal evidence of peculiar Pleistocene animals, including a species of unusually large mouse on Crete, a huge, possibly flightless swan on Malta with a wingspan of around three metres, massive, fiercely toothed shrews on Corsica and other islands, and a giant dormouse on Mallorca that would have been about the size of a grey squirrel. Even more exciting, not to mention cute, were Bates' descriptions of island dwarves. In 1902, Bate was in Cyprus looking for fossils in the Kyrenia Hills, which run along the north coast of the island. Every day she climbed and crawled into dozens of caves, peering by the light of her candle into crevices and fissures, or scraped in hot sunshine in crumbled rock and earth at the foot of cliffs, wrote Carolyn Schindler in her biography, Discovering Dorothea. After weeks of searching, Bate came across a tiny tooth. Then a small, curiously curved tusk. She had discovered the preserved remains of a mini-elephant. Its ancient ancestor presumably reached Cyprus as a full-sized, straight-tusked elephant-like beast when sea levels were low. But being trapped in this minimalist, mountainous environment, natural selection quickly whittled it down to size. A fully grown adult Cypress dwarf elephant would only have reached up to your waist and probably weighed around 200 kilos, 2% of the body mass of its 10-ton elephantine ancestor. The remnants of other similarly dwarfed elephants and hippopotami have been found on just about every island in the Med. These make for wonderful summer holiday destinations, but I think we can all agree that the experience would be much better still if the tiny elephants and hippos that roamed these rugged landscapes until around 11,000 years ago were still with us today. Analysis of ancient DNA recovered from the remains of different extinct dwarf elephant lineages paints an intriguing evolutionary picture. Based on comparing fragments of a gene called cytochrome B, Bates's Cypress dwarf elephant appears to be most closely related to Indian elephants, while the dwarf elephant from Crete is clearly some kind of mammoth. This suggests that there weren't just pygmy elephants, but pygmy mammoths too, meaning that the dwarf species that once lived on the Mediterranean islands could each be independent illustrations of the evolutionary imperative to downsize. It was only the smallest individuals with the most restrained ecological footprint that were able to survive long enough to reproduce. 
Based on a significant haul of fossils from the Spingalo Caves in the east of Sicily, it looks like the secret to the evolution of these mini-elephants may have been reaching sexual maturity very quickly, at three to four years old, rather than 11 to 15, as is the case for African elephants. This so-called progenesis was probably also accompanied by a shorter pregnancy of six months, compared with almost two years for modern elephants, and popping out litters of several baby dwarves, rather than the typical singleton. From the abundance of juvenile bones in the Spingalo deposits, it looks like calf mortality was high, but natural selection clearly favoured those elephants that bought more tickets in the reproductive lottery, increasing the chances that at least some of them would be winners. At the same time as Dorothea Bate was travelling in the Mediterranean in search of over- and undersized mammals, another colourful character was finding examples of island dwarfism without even setting foot on a boat. Baron Ferenc, or Franz Nocce von Felscher Silvash, was a Hungarian aristocrat born in 1877 who grew up in Transylvania in what's now Romania. Gifted with a scientific mind and an adventurous spirit, Nopcha not only gained a PhD in geology, focusing on mapping the area surrounding his family estate, but also found time to smuggle weapons for the Albanian resistance fighting against the Turks, work undercover as a spy in World War I, be the first person in history to hijack an aircraft, and jack in his job as head of the Hungarian Geological Institute to ride around Europe on a motorbike with his male lover, who he also hired as his secretary, looking for fossils. But it was the strange ancient bones he found on his family estate back in 1895 that cemented his ideas about island dwarfism. The fossils turned out to have come from a sauropod dinosaur from the late Cretaceous period, of the same family as well-known giants like Diplodocus, Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus. These are huge, pillar-legged, necky beasts, more than 25 metres long and estimated to have weighed almost 15 tonnes. Notch's Magiosaurus, literally translated as Hungarian lizard, were tiny by comparison. Think of a dinky Diplodocus with adults measuring just six metres long and weighing in at around one tonne. Nopcha was way ahead of his time in suggesting that his ancestral home had once been an island leading to these downsized dinos. But there's now compelling evidence that in the late Cretaceous, when Magisaurus was a thing, most of what we now call Europe was submerged between a body of water known as the Tethys Ocean, with today's higher ground forming islands, including the ancient island of Harteg, where tiny dinosaurs once roamed, and on which Nopcha's well-heeled ancestors built their home. But while both Bate and Nopcha were convinced of the theory of insular dwarfism, they may have been surprised to know that the transforming effects of island life might have come closer to our own species than anyone expected. In 2004, scientists announced the discovery of some very small, very old, but very human bones in a cave on the Indonesian island of Flores. Homo floresiensis, a.k.a. the hobbit, was just one metre tall and weighed less than 30 kilos. This, and another haul of some much older bones, suggest that these small hominids were present on Flores for a long time, between hundreds of thousands and tens of thousands of years ago. 
Even more recently, another diminutive human has turned up on a Southeast Asian island, Luzon in the Philippines. It's hard to put a height on Homo luzonensis, as it's known, from just a handful of hand, foot and thigh bones and teeth. But like the pint-sized elephants on the Mediterranean islands, its existence does suggest that human species, when isolated on islands, may have shrunk more than once. Still, we should be wary of assuming that every example of an island-dwelling giant or dwarf has come about because of the demands of island life. Take the hulking giant tortoises of the Galapagos. With a carapace typically a metre or more in length, and some of the island populations able to extend their limbs and stretch their necks to reach a browsing height of almost two metres, the Galapagos tortoises are frequently cited as a case of island gigantism. The story goes that some small tortoise-like ancestors reached the islands several million years ago and, in the absence of any serious predators to worry about, evolved into today's gentle giants. But Gisela Ciccone, a geneticist at Yale University who has examined the genetics of Galapagos tortoises in forensic detail, thinks that there is another explanation. Although the Galapagos tortoise's closest living relative is the more modestly sized Chaco tortoise from Argentina and Bolivia, the fossil record tells us that there were giant tortoises pretty much everywhere until relatively recently. The direct ancestors of Galapagos tortoises were likely giants themselves, possibly even larger than the giant tortoises of today, Ciccone says. What's more, small tortoises may be less equipped to survive the long journey necessary to colonise remote oceanic islands, she adds. So giant tortoises may have been the norm, with their huge size being a useful adaptation to reduce predation. It's not that they got large in the Galapagos, it's just that these are the only refuges where giant tortoises dodged extinction. But in spite of the odd exception, the island rule seems to be pretty robust. The only thing left to do is to set the historical record straight. Both Bait and Nopcha had clearly worked out Foster's rule more than half a century before Foster himself. That's all for now. Thanks very much to Henry Nichols for researching and writing this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Way of the Panda, and he's the author of several wonderful books about nature, including Lonesome George about the Galapagos tortoise, who's the last survivor of his species, Galapagos about George's island home, and The Way of the Panda, obviously enough, about giant pandas. His latest book, Sleepyhead, is an exploration of sleep disorders based on his own experience of narcolepsy. Next time, we're taking to the night skies with a look at the genetics of bats. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani, with additional research and scripting by Henry Nichols. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. 
Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayo, and audio production is by the fabulous Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.